You're listening to IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Welcome to the reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for February 8th. I'm Kira Cody from Drake University, and here's our first story. Our first story is titled Parents, Lawmakers Seek Restriction, with the subtitle Books in Iowa Schools Discussed at Hearing. The article starts, Des Moines. Iowa parents and conservative activists said in a hearing with state lawmakers on Monday there should be more restrictions and parental permission required for books they found obscene and divisive. In a House Government Oversight Committee meeting, the parents, many of them activists with the conservative group Moms for Liberty, read passages from books they found offensive and said they faced onerous and difficult procedures when trying to challenge the book in their local school districts. Nearly all of the books presented dealt with LGBTQ characters and people of color. Parents read passages containing profanity, descriptions and illustrations of sex, sexual abuse, and other content they said were not suitable to be in a school library. You cannot distribute obscene material to children anywhere else, Pam Grinnell, a parent from Urbandale, said, why would we allow our schools to be exempted from this? For something to be considered obscene in Iowa law, it has to lack serious literary, scientific, political, or artistic value. There is also an exception for the use of appropriate material for educational purposes in schools and public libraries. Mandy Gilbert of Johnston, who raised concerns about the absolutely true diary of a part-time Indian and the hate you give, said she wanted parents to be informed that their children were reading the books that she considered obscene. We did not ask for these two books to be removed from the school library, but questioned why they were hand-selected by teachers to read without parents knowing the explicit language, she said. Government Kim Reynolds, Governor Kim Reynolds, a Republican, Governor Kim Reynolds, a Republican, held a forum with Moms for Liberty last week where she suggested books that are removed by one school should be restricted at all other schools in the state. Under the proposal, a book that has been removed from one school library would be available for students at other schools, but only with a parent's permission. Some Republicans on the committee suggested there should be age restrictions on some books in a school library, similar to a movie rating that would require a parent's consent before being checked out. We don't allow children under 17 into R-rated movies, Representative Steve, and then we'll flip to page A2 to continue this. Continuing under the title restrictions. Representative Steve Holt, R. Dennison said, and we're not banning these movies. We've made a decision that young people as a minimum should have parental consent before being exposed to adult material. But Democrats contended there were already processes in place to challenge materials in Iowa schools and questioned the implications of further restricting material. Lindsey James, a Democrat in Dubuque and the ranking member of the committee said, being too quick to restrict a book could conflict with the rights of students and of parents in the district who did not have problems with the book presented. What I am concerned with is upholding constitutional free speech for our children, making sure that your parental right to choose is upheld, and that as a mom with children in my districts, in both elementary and middle school, that I would have the right to choose what my child would be exposed to, she said. Brooke Bowden, the chair of the committee, said the committee planned to hold a hearing with administrators and teachers to gain their perspective. 
Several people showed up in opposition to the speakers at the meeting, sporting t-shirts, extolling banned books, and supporting public school teachers. Brenda Schumann, a former teacher from Des Moines who attended the hearings to the proposals from Reynolds and other Republicans, would place restrictions on children across the state regardless of how local districts felt about content. What happened to local control? What happened to parents, she said. They think they should be controlling every kid. If they don't want their kids to read it, there should be a way that they can keep their kids from reading it, but not keeping everybody else's kids from reading it. On page A2, this article is accompanied with a picture. Um, It is of activist moms meeting with lawmakers within the Capitol, and you can see them just presenting. And it has the caption, Lawmakers hear from parents who challenged books they found offensive in their local school districts on Monday, February 6, 2023. All right, our next article is called Customized Bronco Pays Tribute with the subtitle, Mobile Memorial Honors Last Americans Lost in Afghanistan. It starts, Wounded Warriors Family Services has a mobile memorial for the last 13 Americans killed in Afghanistan and the vehicle stored in Council Bluffs inside the McMullen Ford showroom. The service members, 11 Marines, including Lance Corporal Dagan W. Page of Omaha, one Army soldier, and one Navy hospital corpsman, are memorialized on a custom-painted Ford Bronco that bears their images and names, which are listed below. Starting with USMC Lance Corporal David L. Espinoza, age 20, from Rio Bravo, Texas. USMC Sergeant Nicole LG23, Sacramento, California. USMC Staff Sergeant Darren T. Hoover, 31, Salt Lake City. Army Staff Sergeant Ryan C. Naus, 23, Corrington, Tennessee. USMC Corporal Hunter Lopez, 22, Indio, California. USMC Lance Corporal Riley J. McCollum, 20, Jackson, Wyoming. USMC Lance Corporal Dylan R. Marola, 20, Rancho Cucamonga, California. USMC Lance Corporal Kareem M. Nikui, 20, Norco, California. USMC Corporal Dagan W. Page, 23, Omaha, Nebraska. USMC Sergeant Johnny Rosario Pitcher, 25, Lawrence, Massachusetts. USMC Corporal Humberto A. Sanchez, 22, Logan Sport, Indiana. USMC Lance Corporal Jared M. Schmitz, 20, St. Charles, Missouri. Navy Hospital Corpsman Max W. Soviak, 22, Berlin Heights, Ohio. The 13 heroes were killed on August 26, 2021, while trying to protect Americans and Afghans waiting to be evacuated from Afghanistan as U.S. armed forces prepared to withdraw. They were struck by ball bearings and shrapnel when a suicide bomber ignited an explosive near Abbey Gate at the Hamid Karzai International Airport in Kabul, Afghanistan. At least 170 Afghan civilians were also killed. Wounded Warriors Family Services, an Omaha-based charity not affiliated with the Wounded Warriors Project, ordered a Ford Bronco in 2020, which was delayed by the plant shutdowns and supply chain issues of the pandemic. When I first ordered it, I wanted to tour it, said Kate McCauley, CEO and President. That would mean driving it to different communities for fundraising activities. In the past, WWFS had used Ford Shelby Mustangs and F-150 pickups for the task, but by the time the Bronco arrived in early 2022, McCauley had decided to dedicate it to the last 13 lost in Afghanistan. 
She told the organization's board of directors and one board member offered to sponsor the airbrush paint by Mickey Harris of South Dakota. Harris painted the faces and names of the service members on the sides of the vehicle, along with uniformed soldiers from various historical periods and hands reaching up behind them. He wanted to merge the founding fathers with the current service members, Macaulay said. The hands symbolized them welcoming the soldiers into brotherhood. He decorated the hood with a couple purple hearts, one with the original design and one with the current one, a Bible, candle, and other items. After seeing the results, Macaulay changed her mind about the vehicle's purpose. It's more of a tribute to our veterans than for driving for tours to the various cities, she said. It's just that it's something so unique and so valuable, we didn't know what to do with it. Since then, the families of 12 of the 13 have signed the vehicle next to the images of their loved ones with comments like, and we'll continue on page A2. Forever my hero, forever my baby boy, mom. Love you, brotato, miss you every day. And to page, love never ends. The finished product was displayed at the Midlands International Auto Show in January at CHI Health Center in Omaha. It really drew a lot of people over to look at the show, she said. The Bronco rolled down the streets of Millard during the Millard Days Parade, and Macaulay thinks they might drive it in more parades in the future. We just hope people see the vehicle and see what it represents, and maybe there's a concern for them, she said. In the meantime, it's a memorial for our veterans who have served. Wounded Warriors Family Services provides support to the families of those who have been wounded, injured, or killed during combat operations, according to its mission statement. The families of our casualties suffer in many ways, some physically, some psychologically, the website states. One thing the organization does is provide vehicle grants and modified vehicles for combat wounded veterans so they can have freedom and independence in their everyday lives. WWFS awards about $1.2 million in vehicle grants per year, Macaulay said. There's a lot of suicides and a lot of isolation with veterans, she said. Our thinking is is if we can get more veterans mobile, it will make a big difference. To date, we've given $9.6 million in vehicles. WWFS has vehicles modified at the Driver Rehabilitation Center of Excellence in Chantilly, Virginia, and flies the recipients out so the modifications will fit the driver, Macaulay said. The organization also provides respite care and supplemental services for family members who take care of veterans. Macaulay said, Caregivers of veterans often spend long hours caring for their loved one, feel high levels of stress and neglect their own personal person health. Caregivers of veterans often spend long hours caring for their loved one, feel high levels of stress, and neglect their own person health, its website states. We have agencies we contract with nationwide, she said. WWFS also sponsors 96 families a year to take vacation retreats. Our family retreats give wounded veterans and their families a break from the pressures of everyday life to take time to become stronger as individuals and families. The website states, The organization also provides scholarships for veterans to receive six weeks of welding instruction at the United Auto Workers Ford Technical Training Center in Lincoln Park, Michigan, near Detroit. The program is specifically for veterans and gives them an opportunity to test for welding certification. This article is accompanied with a picture of the CEO, Kate McCauley, standing with the, the Bronco they created. 
and it is captioned, Wounded Warriors Family Services President and CEO Kate McCauley speaks next to a Ford Bronco, which is hand-painted with the portraits of the last U.S. service members killed in Afghanistan. Inside, McCullen Ford on Tuesday, February 7, 2023. The 13 heroes were killed on August 26, 2021, while trying to protect Americans and Afghans waiting to be evacuated from Afghanistan as U.S. armed forces prepared to withdraw. All right, our third article for the day is titled, Council Bluffs Public Library Host Speakers for Black History Month. The article starts, In honor of Black History Month, the Council Bluffs Public Library is hosting a series of presentations focusing on the importance and history of this month. This series is provided by the State Historical Society of Iowa and includes We Came Home Together, Black Civil War Veterans, and Community Building in Iowa, the education and training of seven African-American U.S. Army officers, and emancipation celebrations, the historical context for Juneteenth. We Came Home Together, Black Civil War Veterans and Community Building in Iowa will be presented today, Wednesday, and Friday by Dwayne Coleman, who is a University of Iowa PhD candidate and co-director of the Iowa Colored Conventions Digital Project. He discussed how Black Civil War veterans of the 1st Iowa Regiment of African Descent, 60th U.S. Colored Infantry, and their families used the goodwill obtained through their service to fight for equal rights and social space in Iowa's communities, a press release said. The education and training of seven African-American U.S. Army officers will be presented on February 15th and February 17th by Bernard Harris, Ph.D. Harris provides an analysis of little-known facts uncovered from archives and museums concerning Fort Des Moines, Iowa in 1970, when the installation hosted the segregated infantry and medical officer training camps. The release said, Harris explores the activities experienced by seven African-American civilians who attended and graduated with U.S. Army officer commissions who went on to serve overseas in France, many in the trenches of World War I. The Emancipation Celebrations, the historical context for Juneteenth, will be presented on February 22nd and February 24th by Leo Landis, State Curator for the State Historical Society of Iowa. Juneteenth became a federal holiday in 2021 and a state holiday in Iowa in 2022. Emancipation events in Iowa took place prior to the Civil War in Muscatine, and over time, communities of various sizes, including Clarinda, Corning, and Sioux City, have hosted events. The release said, The gatherings show that Iowa, Iowans of many backgrounds have come together to celebrate freedom and equality. Presentations are from noon to 1 p.m. at the Council Bluffs Library, 400 Willow Ave, in meeting room D. For more information about upcoming events, visit bit.ly slash 3HF2AQ5 or call 712-323-7553, EXT5427. This article is also paired with a quote that says, All right, our next article is titled, Softball League Signing Up Players Over 50. It starts, No one is too old to play softball, and senior softball is growing in the Omaha metropolitan area. A local program offers indoor practices with forthcoming outdoor practices to try out your skills as soon as weather is permissible. 
There are people who drive from Fremont, Lincoln, and even Dunlap, Iowa, including a player who was 86 last year, to participate in one or more of three senior softball leagues. There are two leagues held during the day and one league during the evenings. All three leagues are draft leagues, have special safety rules, and are for seniors over age 50. The Tuesday morning softball league started in 2022 with five teams, but hopes for six or more in 2023. This league drafts teams for 10 weeks, then redrafts for another 10 weeks to meet different softball players. The price for all 20 weeks is $40. The Friday morning softball league normally has seven or eight teams playing for 20 weeks. The Nebraska Senior Softball League plays on Monday and Wednesday nights. They have over 16 teams with all teams playing on both nights. All senior softball leagues will be played at the La Vista City Park at 7629 Josephine Street. Anyone interested in playing senior softball should contact JTCZUBA at hotmail.com for the Tuesday League. Brayton2001 at yahoo.com, and that's spelled B R A T O N 2001 at yahoo.com. For the Friday League or G P A. B-E-N-N-A-R at gmail.com for the Nebraska Senior Softball League on Monday and Wednesday nights. And this article is paired with a picture of the seniors playing base, playing softball, and it is captured. Three softball leagues are available for seniors with all games held in La Vista. All right, our next article is the face of the day, which starts with the picture of the face of the day, which is Marsha Keith. February is National Heart Health Month. For the various and many cardiovascular health providers in our area, it is a month of significant importance and one that is taken seriously. Marsha Keith, MSBSRT, knows how difficult dealing with cardiovascular disease can be. Service leader of the cardiovascular service line, she has been serving patients at Methodist Jenny Edmondson Hospital since 1988. As the cardiovascular service leader at Jenny Edmondson, I oversee the cardiac catheter lab, cardiovascular diagnostic center, and the cardiopulmonary rehabilitation department, she said. The cardiovascular patients are very important to me and helping to ensure they get appropriate care is essential. Dance to the Beat is a way to help ensure that our cardiovascular patients have the resources to access this care. Dance to the Beat is an annual fundraising event hosted by the Heart Care Center at Methodist Jenny Edmondson Hospital. Funds raised benefit patients at Jenny Edmondson by helping them meet some of their financial and medical needs while going through diagnosis and treatment. When asked of her connection to the Dance to the Beat event, Keith explained, I served on the Dance to the Beat committee and have helped support the foundation staff in helping to secure sponsorships as well as marketing the event. I have an amazing team of professionals caring for our cardiovascular patients, and I am more than proud of the work they do for our patients every single day. This year's Dance to the Beat event will be held on Friday, February 17th from 7 to 11 p.m. at the Mid-American Center, One Arena Way, Council Bluffs. To purchase your $30 Dance to the Beat ticket or to learn more, contact the Methodist Jenny Edmondson Hospital Foundation at jeh foundation.org or by calling 712-396-6040. All right, our next article is a little short local news one titled 
Police seek information after unresponsive man found on I-29 shoulder. A Bellevue, Nebraska man found unresponsive on the side of a highway in Council Bluffs on Monday morning is still in critical condition. Officers responded to the scene at the 44-mile marker on Interstate 29 shortly after 5.30 a.m. Monday. They found an adult male laying on the shoulder of the interstate with an apparent head wound. Medics transported the victim to the Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha for treatment. As of Tuesday afternoon, the 39-year-old man was still in critical condition due to injuries suffered on the side of the highway. An investigation is ongoing. Anyone with information about this incident should call the Council Bluffs Police Department at 712-328-4765. Our next article is titled, Mills County Chase Ends an Arrest of Council Bluffs Man. Mills County deputies were alerted early Tuesday morning at the Omaha Police Department's Able One helicopter was tracking a reported stolen vehicle that had fled officers. Shortly after 2 a.m., a Mills County Sheriff's Office deputy located the vehicle traveling south on 287th Street through Silver City before crashing into an embankment at the intersection of Highway 34 and 284th Street. A short foot pursuit ensued and the suspect, a 24-year-old resident of Council Bluffs, was apprehended by the Mills County K-9 unit. He, he is accused of first-degree theft, eluding driving while license revoked, and other traffic citations. Alright, the next article is titled, Missing Woman Found Dead. The Council Bluffs Police Department asked the public for help in locating Janet Lee North on Tuesday morning. Shortly before 11 a.m., the department said that North was located dead in Omaha, offering condolences to her family and friends. North was last seen on Wednesday, February 1st, in the woods near Haraz Casino. The 55-year-old woman had health issues requiring medical care and was considered an endangered missing person on Tuesday. You're listening to the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for February 8th on IRIS the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and Print Handicapped in Des Moines. I'm Kira Cody from Drake University. Iris volunteers love to hear from listeners. If you have any comments or questions about this or any Iris program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 877-404-4747. We will now be continuing on with the obituaries, starting with Jack L. Johnson. Jack L. Johnson, age 93, of Council Bluffs, passed away on Sunday, February 5, 2023, at Bergen Mercy Hospital in Omaha. Jack was born on April 18, 1929, in Atlantic, Iowa, to the late Owen and Grace Cartwright Johnson. Jack graduated from Underwood High School in 1947. Jack served his country in the U.S. Navy during the Korean conflict. Jack married Shirley Minnick on July 18, 1953. Jack worked as a money collector for CHC Vending, retiring in 1996. Jack was a member of Our Savior's Lutheran Church, life member of VFW Post number 737, Bowling League. Jack enjoyed watching the Iowa Hawkeyes and the Chicago Cubs. Jack was preceded in death by his brother Robert Johnson, sister Ruby England, Survivors include his wife, Shirley Johnson of Council Bluffs, daughters Nancy and Lonnie Ritchie, Linda Wiesner, all of Council Bluffs, son Michael and Jackie Johnson of Murfreesboro, Tennessee, seven grandchildren Joshua and Clarissa Wiesner, 
Jeremy and Jenny Wiesner, Jacob and Chelsea Wiesner, Paul and Elizabeth Johnson, Matthew Johnson, Rebecca Johnson and Elizabeth Johnson, eight great-grandchildren, sister-in-law Arlene Johnson, two nephews. Visitation with family on Thursday from 5 to 7 p.m. at Cutler O'Neill Meyer Woodring Funeral Home. Funeral service on Friday at 10 a.m. at Our Savior's Lutheran Church, 600 Bluff Street. Burial at Cedar Lawn Cemetery Memorials to Our Savior's Lutheran Church. Next, we have Norma Johnson. Norma Johnson, age 85, passed away on February 5th, 2023. She was born August 24th, 1937, to William and Stella Taylor Thacker, Jr. in Council Bluffs, Iowa. Norma graduated from Thomas Jefferson High School with the class of 1955. She married Paul Johnson in 1959, and she was a member of St. Paul Lutheran Church. In addition to her parents, she was preceded in death by her son, Stephen Johnson. Norma is survived by her husband, Paul Johnson, son, Michael Johnson, grandson, Brett Johnson, brother, Marvin Donna Thacker Sr., a host of other family and friends. Visitation will be held from 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. with a prayer service at 7 p.m. at Hoy Kilnoski Funeral Home on Friday, February 10th, 2023. Funeral service will be held at 10 a.m. at Hoy Kilnoski Funeral Home on Saturday, February 11th, 2023. Interment is in Memorial Park Cemetery. Next, we have Marilyn Jenny Harris. Marilyn Jenny Harris, age 84, of Council Bluffs, Iowa, passed away February 4th, 2023. She was born June 11th, 1938, in Grundy Center, Iowa, to Harmon and E. Joyce Burris Boyke. Marilyn was raised on a farm outside of Dyke, Iowa, and graduated from Dyke High School in 1956. She worked in a variety of settings, including as a candy striper in, in clerical positions, as a daycare provider, and retired from Douglas County Hospital working in the business office. She enjoyed reading with family and friends and was one who always made friends easily. One of her greatest joys in her life included being with children and babies, but especially her own grandbabies. She was preceded in death by her sons, Dan and Greg, brother Curtis Boyke, and special friend John Tonkin. Marilyn is survived by her son, Mark Harris, Erica, and their son, Tristan Cece, daughter-in-law, Pamela Harris, and her children, Dan, Rachel, Tom, Brittany, and Matt, Alyssa. Six great-grandchildren, one step-great-grandchild, sisters Judy Moling, Jerry, Dorothy Heine, brother James Boyke, Carol, many nieces, nephews, family, and friends. Visitation is Saturday, February 11th, 2023, from 1 to 3 p.m. at Hoy Kilnoski Funeral Home. Next is Richard Jones. Richard Lee Jones age 79, of Council Bluffs, Iowa, passed away February 3, 2023. He was born March 20, 1943, in Clarinda, Iowa, to Richard M. and Betty Young Jones. He proudly served in the U.S. Navy. Richard was preceded in death by his parents, wife Joan, and brother Timothy. He is survived by his daughter Melissa Jones, 
and his sons, Tim Jones and Ryan Jones, six grandchildren, one great-grandchild on the way, and sisters Teresa Bocker and Jill Wersinski, brother Michael Jones, many nieces, nephews, family, and friends. His visitation will be 1 to 2 p.m. Friday, February 10th, 2023, with a celebration of his life at 2 p.m., all at Hoy Kalnoski Funeral Home, 1221 North 16th Street. Military honors provided by Canesville Honor Guard. Our final obituary for the day is Gretchen Matthews. Gretchen Matthews, age 84, passed away on February 6, 2023. She was born July 4, 1938, to the late William and Susan Salter Palmer in Bedford, Iowa. Gretchen is survived by her husband of 59 years, Daniel Dan Matthews, son Don Matthews, brother Dave Palmer, and granddaughters Kaylee Stallman, niece Laura Burgles, nephew Jeffrey Palmer, and additional nieces, nephews, cousins, and a host of other family and friends. A celebration of her life will be held from 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. at Hoy Klonowski Community Room on Saturday, February 11th, 2023. Moving back onto articles, we're going to start with the Capital Digest section, with the first article being titled, House Advances Fixed to Property Tax Rate Error. It starts, Des Moines, Iowa lawmakers continue to advance a proposal to fix a state error that's left property taxpayers on the hook for higher bills than expected, but could leave local governments short millions in expected revenue. A House Ways and Means Subcommittee Monday advanced Senate File 181 for a hearing by the full committee. The panel of lawmakers heard from representatives for Iowa's cities, counties, and community colleges who urged lawmakers to delay for a year changing the residential property tax rollback rate to allow local governments more time to make adjustments to absorb the financial blow. Or alternatively, replace the property tax revenue local governments will use with one-time state dollars. Subcommittee member Representative David Jacoby, Democrat from Coralville, said he planned to introduce an amendment to use $127 million from the state's more than $2 billion taxpayer trust fund to temporarily make cities, counties, and local taxing entities whole. A similar amendment to replace the property tax revenue local governments would lose failed on a largely party-line vote last week in the Senate. Cities, counties, community colleges, and police officials are go- Cities, counties, community colleges, and police officials argued local governments needed more time to plan for the reduced revenues while avoiding cuts to public safety, which accounts for a bulk of city and county budgets and other essential services in the coming fiscal year. Representatives for Iowans for Tax Relief and the Iowa Taxpayers Association said a delay would equate to higher property tax bills for Iowa homeowners. Victoria Sinclair with Iowans for Tax Relief noted the bill did not preclude local governments from raising property tax rates or using cash reserves to account for a revenue shortfall. Cedar Rapids City Manager Jeff Pomerantz said in an email Monday to the City Council and Department heads that the Senate bill would cost the city approximately $2.5 million. While the House debates its version of legislation to fix the state's air, Pomerantz said the city would postpone its budget meeting initially scheduled for Tuesday. 
because we do not yet know exactly how a final bill would impact the budget, he said. The city would reschedule the budget session with the council as soon as the bill was finalized. The first subtitle in the article is New Director Named for Iowa Law Enforcement Academy. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds on Monday appointed Sergeant Brady Carney of the Des Moines Police Department's Investigations Division to lead the Iowa Law Enforcement Academy. Sergeant Carney's years of experience in police patrol, investigation, and intelligence have prepared him to provide the best possible training experience for recruits, Reynolds said in a statement. In a statement, Carney said Iowa residents deserve excellence from their public servants and the Iowa Law Enforcement Academy will work tirelessly to ensure those expectations are met. Carney has served as a uniformed patrol officer and narcotics investigator throughout his career, according to the governor's office, and has trained and supervised other officers throughout. He was named Des Moines Police Officer of the Year in 2019. As director of the Iowa Law Enforcement Academy, Carney will oversee law enforcement training and education and evaluate its performance in meeting immediate and long-term goals. He begins his new role March 6th. Carney secedes former Des Moines Police Chief Judy Bradshaw. She was appointed by former Governor Terry Branstad to lead the academy in 2015 after she served one year as the assistant director. Bradshaw retired, according to the governor's office, but was not immediately clear when she retired. The next subtitle is, Delayed Funds Won't Result in Loss of Heat. State Auditor Rob Sand assured illegible low-income Iowans their heating would not be turned off despite a delay in payments under a home heating assistance program. Monday, Sand said Iowa law prohibits eligible low-income home energy assistance program customers from being disconnected from electricity or natural gas supply from November through April, regardless of temperature. The federally funded program is designed to help low-income households pay for their heating needs. I have received several inquiries from Iowans who qualify for energy assistance through LIHEAP, but their accounts have not been credited by their utility vendor, or they have not received their direct payment from LIHEAP, Sand said in the advisory. We want to assure those Iowans that their heat will not be turned off in the dead of winter. Sand said he and his office were monitoring the situation and they believe the LIHEAP dollars will be distributed and credited by April. Continuing on in the Capital Digest section, our next article is titled Ernst, Have Drug Dogs Screen All Vehicles at Southern Border? Back from a tour of the San Diego-Mexico border and meetings with Mexican officials, Iowa Republican U.S. Senator Joni Ernst on Tuesday called on Democratic President Joe Biden to crack down of the flow of fentanyl entering the United States, including having every vehicle entering the southern border screened by a drug-sniffing police dog. Ernst spoke with reporters after returning from a visit with Iowa Republican U.S. Representative Randy Feenstra and Marionette Miller-Meeks to the San Diego sector of the U.S.-Mexico border and to Mexico City. Ernst called the Port of San Diego the world's busiest land border crossing, the epicenter of fentanyl trafficking. The The lethal drugs that come through the sector of the border feed right into the Midwest, said Ernst, a member of the Senate Armed Services Committee. It is our joint responsibility with Mexico to bring an end to the fentanyl crisis and the resulting cartel violence. President Biden must present a clear plan that meets the challenges 
at the U.S.-Mexico border. It's a complicated problem, but complicated can't mean complacency. Ernst said the delegation met with members of the National Border Patrol Council, which outlined the difficulties border agents are facing curbing illegal border crossings, including outdated service technology and a shortage of agents and canine units. Right now, our border patrol is demoralized, Ernst said. They feel like Uber drivers and paper pushers instead of frontline agents who are pushing back on cartel activity and drug and human smuggling. Border Patrol told us they're seeing a trend of even more gotaways, people that illegally cross the border and are never caught, than people who were actually apprehended in the previous year. Biden was expected to call on Congress during his State of the Union address Tuesday night to work with the administration to address the fentanyl crisis. Biden was to call for expanded access to opioid-related addiction treatment and announce he will ramp up efforts to curb fentanyl trafficking at the southern border and through commercial delivery packages, according to a White House official. Biden was expected to announce 123 new large-scale scanners at points of entry along the southwest border by fiscal 2026, increasing inspection capacity from what has historically been about 2% of passenger vehicles and about 17% of cargo vehicles to 40% of passenger vehicles and 70% of cargo vehicles. These investments will crack down on a major avenue of fentanyl trafficking, securing our border, and keeping dangerous drugs from reaching our country, a White House official wrote in an email. Customs and Border will expand voluntary data sharing partnerships this year in an effort to capture more information and in turn seize more commercial packages containing illicit substances. A sustained diplomatic push to address fentanyl and its supply chain abroad plans to work with Congress to make permanent tough penalties on suppliers of fentanyl. An official with the Office of National Drug Control Policy said the strategy is to go after the entire illicit global fentanyl supply chain and the profits that drive drug traffickers. Provisional data from the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention show that more than 107,000 Americans died from a drug overdose in the 12 months ending in August 2022. Most of those deaths were caused by illicit synthetic drugs like fentanyl and methamphetamine. That's a slight decrease from the 110,315 fatal drug overdoses provisionally estimated for the 12-month period ending March 2022. Ernst proposed improved relations with Mexico through creation of an interagency task force in Mexico to deter the flow of drugs and increase K-9 units along the border. She said the port of entry in San Diego has 34 lanes of traffic with 70,000 vehicle and 20,000 pedestrians crossings each day but only three to five K-9 unions working on a given day. This article was then paired with a picture of Joni Ernst talking at a hearing. It then has the caption, Iowa Republican U.S. Senator Joni Ernst and Iowa Republican U.S. Representative Randy Feenstra and Marionette Miller-Meeks met with officials at the Mexican Embassy during a visit last week to the San Diego sector of the U.S.-Mexico border and Mexico City, Mexico. For a more fun section, we're going to move on to sports. The first is titled, Trainer Host Underwood for Thrilling Senior Night. The first is a picture of the senior Clara Tigland uh, playing basketball. It has the caption, Trainer Senior Clara Tigland had a big performance on senior night in trainer. The Air Force commit scored 17 points. Right next to it is a picture of the student section dressing up as if they were ESPM sports commentators. And the picture has the caption, 
The trainer student section led the school spirit with an ESPN table. The next, the next article is Mahomes hurts Bowie Super Bowl teams amid quarterback injury spate. It matters that Patrick Mahomes is spectacularly talented, of course. Might matter just as much that he is almost always available for the Kansas City Chiefs. Same goes for the Philadelphia Eagles and Jalen Hurts. Those are big reasons the Chiefs and Eagles will meet in the Super Bowl, with AP NFL MVP and Offensive Player of the Year finalists Mahomes and Hurts taking the snaps on Sunday in Glendale, Arizona. Sure, the San Francisco 49ers nearly managed to make it all the way to the championship game with the last pick of the draft rookie bumped all the way up to starter from number three on the depth chart because of injuries to others, but then Brock Purdy hurt his elbow in the NFC title game at Philadelphia, leaving the Niners to try to rely on journeyman Josh Johnson until he got a concussion, meaning Purdy needed to go back in, despite being unable to throw that 49ers coach Kyle Shanahan said was kind of just hard to stomach. This season revealed, like never before, a glaring amount of instability at quarterback in the NFL. Whether because of injury, the reason for nearly half of all changes during the regular season, according to an AP analysis, or poor performance. A total of 68 quarterbacks started at least one game, an average of more than two per team, and a record for a non-strike year. What's more, 13 clubs, another high, needed to use at least three starters at the most important positions in this or any sport. Some even turned to four, with the Arizona Cardinals using that many starting quarterbacks in a span of just four weeks. Quarterback shuffling can go a long way toward altering a team's trajectory as the Jets, Titans, and Panthers found out on their way to missing the playoffs. The Dolphins made the postseason despite losing Tua Tagovailoa to a series of concussions, then had backup Teddy Bridgewater dislocate his pinky, leaving them with third-string rookie Skylar Thompson and his 18-for-45-2 interception performance in their wildcard elimination. When you, as a defender, see a guy at quarterback who has not played a lot, you are going to lick your chops and you assume he's not going to be in rhythm and you assume he's not going to be ready to go. Hall of Fame defensive back Ronnie Lott said, Our coach Bill Walsh basically said, Hey Ronnie, a team's only as good as the backup quarterback because if the backup quarterback can't come in and do the things he needs to be able to do, a team is going to be in trouble. And keeping the starter upright is almost always needed for success. The top five regular season teams in the AFC, including the Chiefs, had their number one quarterback available for regular season game and will home and when Mahomes did leave a playoff game with a bad ankle, Chad Haney came in and, and we're going to finish this on page B2. Restarting the article under the subtitle quarterbacks, delivered leading a 98-yard TD drive in what turned out to be a seven-point victory. And all nine of the 14 participants in the postseason never had to turn to a backup quarterback to start. The Eagles came close. Hertz missed two games with a bad shoulder. Philadelphia went 0-2 with Gardner Minshew in his place. Seems obvious. Having your preferred quarterback one available week after week makes your offense more likely to succeed, and that makes your team more likely to win. Consider that the passer rating for quarterbacks slated to be starters was about 10 points higher than for replacements, or look at the Jacksonville Jaguars and Trevor Lawrence. He got stuck around for 17 games and closed it with five wins in a row three against the quarterback troubled Jets or Titans to earn a playoff spot. 
It's certainly key just because everybody continues to gel, you get the chemistry together. The receivers know if I run this route on this step, the ball is going to be thrown to this point just because we've done it a million times. Jaguars offensive coordinator Press Taylor said, you can understand how an injury absence throws guys off. Backup quarterbacks generally get zero practice time with the rest of the first team offense during the season. So when the chop choice at that spot is removed, there can be growing pains. Purdy was an exception, of course, and there have been others. Sometimes when a quarterback goes down, Cowboys guard Zach Martin said, there's a kind of sense of panic in the locker room and on the team like, what are we going to do? Some of the season's dominant storylines involve sideline quarterbacks from Miami's Tagovailoa to Baltimore's Lamar Jackson to the reigning Super Bowl champion Rams' Matthew Stafford or efforts via officiating to protect them. Whether the outcry among defenders over roughing the passer calls or the 15-yard penalty on Bengals defensive and Joseph Osai for shoving it out of bounds Mahomes that helped Casey get into position for the winning field goal in the AFC title game. Lowering the number of quarterback injuries is obviously a major priority for us to Troy Vincent, the NFL's executive vice president of football operations. It's critical that we examine where they're coming from. Are they legal hits? Are they in the pocket? Out of the pocket? Increased impatience when it comes to wins and losses accounts for some of the switching, the same sort of itchiness that leads to first-year coaches getting fired. But it seems to always come back to injuries. One potential cause? Rushing attempts by signal callers reached a record high at 2,309 and were also at their most per game, up 47% from 2012. That increases the opportunities to get hurt. Another, the 1,297 total sacks around the NFL were the third most ever, and the average of 4.8 per game was the third highest over the last nine years. As an aside, Mahomes and Hurts might want to watch out on Super Sunday. The Eagles ranked number one, the Chiefs number two in sacks. It's certainly possible, or at least plausible, that whatever the NFL does to try to keep quarterbacks safe isn't working, and truly can't work. At this point, you're hoping, Lot said, your quarterback can withstand the pounding. The 49ers under Shanahan are Exhibit A. The team kept one quarterback healthy only once in his six seasons, in 2019, when they just so happened to reach the Super Bowl. They went through at least three starters in four of the last six seasons. This time, Trey Lance broke an ankle while running in Week 2, and Jimmy Garoppolo broke his foot on a sack in Week 13. It's awesome, star tight end George Kittle said. Sarcastically, it's an experience. I just have a plethora of quarterbacks to choose from. The rash of injuries for the 49ers and others raised the question of whether the league should bring back some form of the 1991-2010 to rule that let teams have a third quarterback in uniform, who would not count against the game day roster limit and would be available in an emergency. We were scared to death when that rule ended, but you kind of forget about it since you just don't see anyone have to go through it, Shanahan said. But then you get reminded of how quickly a football game is over once that happens. The NFL's Vincent said there have been multiple discussions about restoring the third quarterback rule, and the general manager advisory committee is considering putting it before the full membership. What you don't want is Christian McCaffrey playing quarterback, Lott said, referring to the 49ers, do everything running back. With all due respect, he's a hell of an athlete, but he needs to be where he is most effective, and that is running and catching the ball, not playing quarterback. 
The article is then paired with a picture of Mahomes throwing a ball with the caption, Kansas City Chiefs quarterback Patrick Mahomes, number 15, throws against the Las Vegas Raiders during the first half of a game last month in Vegas. Our next article is titled, Lewis Central Defense Shuts Down Rams for Ranked H-10 Win. Class 4A, number 10 Lewis Central's defense suffocated number 14 Glenwood in a commanding 49-34 win in Titan Arena on Tuesday night. The visiting Rams were able to start with a pair of baskets to take a quick 4-2 lead, but faced an uphill battle the rest of the half, limiting Glenwood senior Jenna Hopp averaging 25.6 points per game to just two first-half points. The Titans turned defense into offense with turnovers and efficient rebounding to limit the Rams' opportunities. Sophomore Brooke Larson poured in a team-high 10 points in the first half for Lewis Central and closed the half with a fast break layup to put the Titans up 21-10 at the break. As if to show up her teammate, Lucy Scott made a trio of threes and two free throws in the third quarters as the Titans kept the Rams at arm's length. The game plan against Top continued to work, and the Titans were able to cruise comfortably to an X-point win, allowing just 35.6 opponent points per game. Lewis Central's lockdown performance was little shock to those familiar. Scott and Larson finished joint top scores with 18 points each for the Titans. This article is then paired with two pictures. The first is um, Glenwood's Jenna Hopp being surrounded by Lewis Central defenders as she holds the ball with the caption, Glenwood's Jenna Hopp in black, surrounded by Lewis Central defenders as the team matched up on a Tuesday night. The next picture is one of the Lewis Central students uh, making a three free throw. The caption is, Lewis Central student section puts up spirit fingers as Avery Hannafan, number 20, shoots a free throw during the first half of the 4A, number 10 Titans game against number 14 Glenwood in an H-10 matchup on Tuesday night. Our next article is about Iowa basketball with the title, Hawkeyes welcome a crack at top-ranked Boilers. Iowa City, it's one of those weeks when it is business as usual for the Iowa basketball team, but it really isn't business as usual. The Hawkeyes are preparing to face top-ranked Purdue on Thursday, and while preparations for the 6 p.m. game at Mackey Arena won't differ from how Iowa prepares for any opponent, this game is different. It's not something that is going to be dwelled on, but I'm sure that between now and game time coach Fran McCaffrey will say something like, it's not often you get the chance to play the number one team in the country on their home court, Iowa senior Connor McCaffrey said. You want to go out and make the most of the opportunity. Iowa has faced the nation's top-ranked basketball team just 24 times in this program's history and is 3-21 in those games. The Hawkeyes are winless in nine games against top-related opponents on the road and last defeated an opponent ranked first on December 29, 2015, when Iowa defeated Michigan State 83-70 at Carver-Hawkeye Arena. The other two wins came on neutral courts, a 70-68 win over Connecticut at Madison Square Garden that opened the 1999-2000 season and an 87-82 victory over UCLA in 1965 at the Chicago Stadium. Coach McCaffrey said Tuesday at his weekly news conference that his team's focus is more on what the Boilermakers have done to build a 22-2 record than it is on where they are ranked this week. I think at this point, anybody that plays Purdue has tremendous respect for that team and coach, Matt Painter, and players they have. Everybody knows that they have a tough place to play. Everybody knows that too, McCaffrey said. We're just trying to get ready. 
The next article is on sports gambling with the title, Different Way to Wager, with the subtitle, Super Bowl Prop Betting Increasing in Popularity. Las Vegas. Jay Cornegay was behind the counter in 2004 when someone approached with $5,000 to bet on the Super Bowl, but had no idea how to decide. The man, not a regular sports better, thought for a few moments and decided to put it all on the Carolina Panthers to score exactly 29 points at 30-1 to 1 odds. Cornegay couldn't believe it, but took the man's money and later returned it plus the winnings. The bet cashed when the Panthers scored that amount in a three-point loss to the New England Patriots. The Super Bowl draws a larger portion of casual bettors than other American sporting events, and the numerous proposition options each year underscore how the game's mass appeal goes well beyond professional gamblers and hardcore fans. We're certainly going to write a lot more tickets on the propositions than the game, said Cornegay, vice president of race and sports operations at Westgate Las Vegas. They've become so popular. This year's Super Bowl between the Kansas City Chiefs and Philadelphia Eagles is February 12th at State Farm Stadium in Glendale, Arizona, the first time the championship will be played inside a venue with a sports book. Next year's Super Bowl will be in Las Vegas, the nation's sports betting capital. Sportsbooks have taken advantage of the increasing popularity of prop bets, which could range from whether there will be a safety to whether the Chiefs or Eagles will score more points than LeBron James or Steph Curry when their teams meet the day before the big game. Most props will be made available next week, but Caesar Sportsbook already has its 2,000 option menu available. Among the choices was whether the first turnover will be an interception or fumble. The interception is minus 170, meaning somebody would need to bet $170 to win $100. The fumble is listed as plus 140, which means a $100 bet would pay $140. Jason Scott, Bet MGM Vice President of Trading, said he expects to put out 700 or 800 such bets by next week for its properties in 20 states plus Washington, D.C. Cornegay said Westgate will have about 500 bets with roughly 1,000 options. Jeff Benson, Circus Sports Operations Manager, said his casino's booklet will be 12 or 13 pages front and back. I think you have a ton of people that want just to bet the props, Benson said. They don't really care who wins. That's really a way for them to enjoy the game. The number of bets on props is considerably higher than traditional wagers, such as which team will cover the point spread and whether the total number of points with the higher or lower than the posted figure. The Eagles are one half point favorites at FanDuel Sportsbook and the total is 50 half points. Cornegate estimated that for every traditional Super Bowl bet, there are six or seven prop wagers. Scott said that while some of the more unusual prop bets draw much of the attention, more than 99% of the money tends to go to about 30 high-profile bets, such as which player will score the first touchdown. The popularity of props is a fairly recent phenomenon. Caesars is believed to have published the first prop bet when it posted at 20 to 1 odds that defensive lineman and goal line running back William, the refrigerator Perry, would score a touchdown for the Chicago Bears in the 1986 Super Bowl. The odds plummeted to 2 to 1 by kickoff and Perry rewarded betters by reaching the end zone late in the third quarter. That Super Bowl was the second of a 13-game winning streak for the NFC in the title game, many of them blowouts. Cornegay was at the now closed Imperial Palace at at the time, and he wanted to find a new way to attract betters and keep their interest throughout the one-sided games. Before the 1995 championship between the San Francisco 49ers and San Diego Chargers, prop bets were still limited, so Cornegay and his team decided to change that. 
They developed about 150 prop bets for the anticipated blowout that became a 49-26 win by the 49ers. It stirred up quite a bit of interest, Cornegay said, and ever since then, the propositions have been part of the Super Bowl weekend. The games have usually been much closer since the turn of the century, many coming down to the final minutes. Professional sports bettors tend to make more traditional wages and look for value in the props if they believe they can find a betting number to exploit. For the most part, the props belong to the general public, and with the lack of betting experience some come some unusual choices. Cornegay said a better drove to Las Vegas from California, unsure of what to do with $50,000. He put his all in the coin toss, and it came in. In the Chiefs' 31-20 victory over the 49ers three years ago, Benson said someone correctly bet the exact score for each team. It didn't turn out great for us, Benson said, and turned out awfully good for him. But obviously in this business, you definitely see some long shots hit once you book enough Super Bowls. This article is then paired with a picture of people betting with the caption, a person gambles as betting odds for the Super Bowl are displayed on monitors at the Circa Resort and Casino Sportsbook in Las Vegas on Friday. All right, and that brings us to the end of today's reading of the Council Bluffs Daily Nonpareil for February 8th, 2023. The Nonpareil can be heard each weekday at 3 p.m. Iris volunteers love to hear from listeners. If you have any comments or questions about today's broadcast or any Iris program, please call toll-free from anywhere in Iowa at 877-404-4747. I'm Kara Cody from Drake University in Des Moines, and thank you so much for listening.